Hi, this is George Fox Talks. I'm Jay Miller, and today I'm joined by Melanie Mock to talk about parenting and relating to the young adults in our lives. I'm Jay Miller, and today I'm joined by Melanie Mock. Melanie is a professor of English in the Language and Literature Department. Um, so I'm fortunate to have her as a colleague, and I was also fortunate to have her as a student back when I was a student. So it's exciting for me to talk to Melanie about her work today. Her new book is Finding Our Way Forward, When the Children We Love Become Adults. And this was just published this year, right, Melanie, 2023? Yeah, March 2023. March 2023 with Herald Press. Um, Finding Our Way Forward, When the Children We Love Become Adults. You're very explicit, Melanie, in the introduction that this isn't a how-to book for like how to parent your um, young adult children, et cetera. And um, I think that's a great insight because this book does so many different things. It's one of the things I really enjoyed about it. Um, that as I was reading, as was noticing, oh, we're slipping into memoir here, or we're doing cultural criticism. You also have reportage from some of the students and the kind of young adults in your life that you're kind of reporting on what their experiences are. And I was really struck by that mix of genres, and there are probably others in there, and was curious if you could say a little bit about how the book came together in terms of the genres you chose to work with, if that was an intentional kind of blending of different genres, or um, if it just kind of came together slowly and you realized you had these separate strands of the book that you're using to talk about how adults can relate to young adults. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I made it very clear with the publisher that I am not an expert on young adults and parenting because I'm still on the journey right mm -hmm. now with my two youngest sons. Um, so I was very explicit that this I could not write a how-to book. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of Christian women's writing right now especially has that mix of memoir and um, cultural critique. And so I'm just following mm -hmm. along in that trend of using my own personal story as a way to explore larger ideas, um, a, a very prominent trend. Uh, the way the book came together is um, Harold Press contacted me and asked me if I had any ideas, which is uh, something that doesn't happen mm -hmm. a lot. But um, I write in Mennonite circles, and Harold Press has been a Mennonite publisher. Um, and at the time, when they approached me, my son Benjamin was in um, was in boot camp for the Navy. And so I'd been thinking a lot uh, about his journey in boot camp since uh, my husband and I are very ardent pacifists. Um, and the challenge of trying to nurture my son into a different pathway other than the military mm -hmm. was foremost in my mind. So mm -hmm. I pitched this idea of writing about that experience to Harold Press. And that's that became then the book proposal that became the book. So um, the book does not explicitly say this is how to raise a child or mentor a young adult, but it uses uses my experiences as a parent and also as a teacher of young adults for 25 years now to explore the challenges that come with raising this generation and what we can learn about ourselves in the process. Mm -hmm. And what year was that that the press reached out to you then? Um, 2020, late 2021. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there was a little, there was other stuff going on in the world at that time. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> As you talk right. out, I mean, so you talked about the kind of personal challenges you were walking through, but it, right. from early on in the book, you also foreground just a lot of other stuff going on. You'll start, you know, in 2020 and 2021 being a really intense time. Absolutely. So both my children graduated from high school in 2020, mm. which meant they didn't graduate. They didn't have a graduation uh, other than a drive through thing. They didn't get to go through all the rituals that you go through your high school senior year. Um, they were facing that that fall of 2020. Newburgh, Oregon was facing all kinds of forest fires and smoke mm -hmm. and those kind of things. The pandemic was ongoing um, and just felt like we were in in crisis. That the world was on fire. And 2020 was also a time when there was racial unrest and political unrest. And um, so my kids and many other kids in this generation were trying to launch into adulthood with all these other stressors happening in their life at the same time. Mm -hmm. So as you were kind of thinking, kind of in this real crucible, kind of riding your way through all these challenging experiences, mm -hmm. um, what did you feel like? Yeah, it's not a how-to book, um, but I think there are a lot of really great insights for people out of your own experience in this mm -hmm. book. And it was interesting for me to read. I'm a parent of a toddler and a newborn right now, so it's mm -hmm. a very different stage. So it's interesting for me to read the book kind of looking ahead, and a lot of it made sense to me um, in terms of how kind of the parenting relationship could unfold. Um, but what would you say if you had one or two kind of key takeaways for you that you learned as you were writing this book or articulate mm -hmm. as you were writing this book, mm -hmm. what would you say those are? Oh, that's another great question. I think um, learning is a, is a great way to put it because the process of writing this book was a process of me learning about myself, learning about the world, learning about young people, and recognizing that if I am going to parent or mentor young adults well, I have to be open to learning as well. I think it's easy for somebody my age to get really entrenched in the way things are and the way things should be. Hmm. But recognizing that um, as my kids are going through this transitional time and facing all these challenges, I am too. Mm -hmm. And that there aren't really that many guidebooks for how you launch an adult child in during a pandemic um, so I have to be open to, to learning. So that's one takeaway. <clears throat> the other takeaway is that I think scripture already tells us, provides a, a, like a roadmap for what we should do. Um, and if we distill it down to a simple message, God tells us that we're supposed to love God and love others. Mm -hmm. And if we can approach parenting or mentoring young people through that lens, I think we both can make that transition transition more smoothly. Um, and I also frame the book around Micah 6, 8, which says, what does the Lord require of you to do justice, love mercy, and walk with humility? And so I tried to um, think about my life and my journey with my children through those frames of what do I need to learn about humility? What do I need to learn about mercy? What do I need to learn about justice? And what can young people teach me about those things? Mm -hmm. So I wonder if we could dive into a specific kind of example of that. You, you already brought up your son, Ben, joining the Navy after, you know, kind of years of you and your husband kind of talking about your own pacifism and deep mm -hmm. commitment in your writing and your lives and what you do to peace. Mm -hmm. um, and so just that setup, I think, is very can be very clear to people of what a difficult thing that would be. Mm -hmm. um, I understand that, too, as someone committed to peace and you know, being against war and this sort of thing as a Quaker. Um, so I'm, I, could you talk a little bit more about how you learned to 
um, apply Micah six eight to that parenting situation, or even even just that relationship to your adult child? Absolutely. So Benjamin, um, he actually came to George Fox for a year. Okay. Uh, realized pretty early on that he didn't want to be at school. And um, April of his freshman year approached Ron and I and told us that he was enlisting in the military. And we spent several months then pretty much begging him not to do that. We had really intense, deep conversations where Ron and I were crying because we just we can't imagine our son mm -hmm. going into the military. Um, but he was 18 and could make his own choices and made the choice to enlist and left for boot camp that fall. Um, and, the, and that experience journeying with Ben taught me a good deal about humility mm -hmm. in the sense that I felt like I knew exactly what my son's calling would be and it wasn't in the military. And he was telling me mm. that God was calling him to the military. He had processed this with trusted adults in his life and said, yes, this is the call that I'm supposed to make. And um, it was humbling to recognize that I spent my vocation talking with young people about calling mm -hmm. and telling them to trust their calling. And here was my son telling me that he felt called to the military and I was not trusting that, trusting him. I wasn't trusting God. So there was humility in making like releasing him to that and releasing my own pride about that. Mm -hmm. And there was also pride in the sense that I felt like, um, and I'm just going to be really honest here, I felt like as a pacifist, my way was better mm -hmm. than people who go into the military. Mm -hmm. I don't understand people who go in the military. I think it was wrong. I thought it was wrong. Um, I didn't understand the patrioticness of the military. Um and it was so I was humbling when Ben went into boot camp and I started meeting other families whose children were in the military and recognizing my own bigotry about people in the military and families in the military and recognizing that I needed to have a change of heart because these people were so lovely to me and to Ron and to Benjamin. They were so, so supportive and um, I just needed to like understand people better mm -hmm. and have more empathy for where people are coming from. Mm -hmm. So that was a really humbling experience for me. Mm -hmm. And it continues to be a humbling experience mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. I, I think, um, I wonder, you've talked about kind of the lessons for like parenting relationship, but I wonder if we could digress a little bit and talk about mm -hmm. just like what in there you're learning about, um, like embodied or like living out one's pacifism, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. what that actually looks like concretely. And I wonder yeah. if for you, like, in this experience, it's, I don't know if we would put it as strongly as thinking about, you know, usually when we talk about loving our enemies from a kind of past perspective, sometimes we're thinking about enemies outside of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Or like mm -hmm. countries or populations that the United mm -hmm. States is sort of at war with or against. But yeah. um, I kind of hear you talking about learning to love enemies or people you strongly disagreed with or thought you were better than, you know, in the United States or in the kind of own United States military. Am I, am I kind of parsing that out correctly? And oh, that's absolutely. Kind of, yeah. yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Could you just say more about how people with a pacifist perspective can take those kind of lessons on board more Ooh. or why that's important? Yeah. Well, I think there is a hubris in, in believing that the peace tradition is somehow more enlightened, more 
um, well, I do think it's biblical, but like mm-hmm. the way we live that out really is important in our own communities and how we respond to other people. Um, I think it's been really easy in my life here in Newburgh to, to like wear that pacifism as a mantle mm-hmm. and therefore not want to even um, interact with somebody who has American flags all over their their yard. Because I, I grew up Mennonite and learned, if only through osmosis, that those patriotic displays are anathema to what Jesus mm-hmm. calls us to. Mm-hmm. But being able to let that go and have a conversation with somebody who has their home festooned in um, in flags really challenges me to love somebody who's different than me and mm-hmm. to have empathy for somebody who had a completely different upbringing than I did as a Mennonite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit, you know, in this kind of about your experience of learning um, kind of how to relate to young adults through your family. Mm-hmm. Um, another big part of this book is talking about what you've learned from your students. So yeah. you and I just, you know, as college professors, I feel like it's just this is amazing opportunity and privilege to work with people. You know, we work with non-traditional students as well, but primarily we're working with undergraduates who, you know, turn 18, go to college or at this really kind of pivotal time in their lives. And I think it's such a rich opportunity and a privilege. Um, And you really draw on that in your book. And I'm curious, um, what do you feel like are some of the things, there are quite a lot, but I'm just kind of wondering what comes to mind when you think of what you've learned from your students over the years in terms of relating to um, people transitioning into young adulthood from Mm -hmm. being a teenager and being at home. Yeah. So I think... Uh, as my kids grew older, as they got to the age of college students, um, I learned a, a lot more about empathy and having empathy for where students are. Um, there would have been a time where I was kind of irritated if a student was struggling and didn't come to class, and I would assume it was my problem that I had done something I wasn't encouraging enough or I wasn't um, inspiring enough to get them to come to, to class. But um, seeing my own children and some of the challenges they faced as they reached this age has made me far more empathetic for young people and the challenges that they're facing right now and the ways they're trying to navigate adulthood. Um, I think I have a clear sense that becoming an adult is really, really difficult. And we nurture these people for 18 years, and then they're kind of on their own to try to figure things out. And so... um, I'm learning even in my students how how difficult and challenging being a young adult can be and um, how much they need our support and encouragement as they develop their their own lives, their own agency. Um, I think I've learned a good deal about loving mercy from my students. Mm-hmm. And I give the example in the in the text of having a curriculum in my journalism class and um not seen any problem with it. I try to be really careful about being unbiased in the kinds of curricula- the kinds of curricular choices I make. And a student coming to my office after class once and talking to me about how she was personally offended by by something that I had had the students read that she felt it was really biased. Um, and I, I appreciated so much her courage in being willing to do that and have that conversation. 
and then recognizing that I still have places where I can learn and grow, that I still have biases that I don't even see. And so being able to ask her for forgiveness was really empowering for both of us, I think, Mm -hmm. in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I've learned about loving mercy. Um, I've learned about empathy. I've learned about creativity. I just, I have a creative nonfiction class and every semester just blows me away how creative students are. And even today, this afternoon, um, we did an exercise and I was just like stunned by how creative and funny and um, sarcastic my students can be in all the best ways. Mm-hmm. What do you think are, you know, as, as I'm thinking about, you know, all the young adults bring to the table, especially you talk a lot about Gen Z mm-hmm. in this book is kind of the are kind of in that young adult window right now. Mm-hmm. I'm a millennial. I'm kind of really aging out of young adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it can be a it can be an oddly elastic category sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny mm-hmm. sometimes to get older and feel like people are still counting you as a young adult, but I think I'm yeah. finally kind of getting out of that phase. Um, <laughs> but what do you think are some of the um, stereotypes that you feel like your students um, or like Gen Z students in particular yeah. are fighting back against as young adults and that... N- you feel like your students maybe need to be given more agency is a word you mm-hmm. use. You also use the word trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are they up against just in terms of the way they're sometimes perceived um, by people who aren't their age? Yeah. So I think Gen Z is seen as self-absorbed. Um, I think they're seen as completely tied to technology and unwilling to be untethered by technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're, um, seen as people who who uh, who want to be coddled. I mean, that's the title of an an essay about sure. this generation. Yeah. So, um, and I think those are really unfair assessments of mm. our young people. Um, they, um, I think, they long to be untethered from their technology. They recognize the problem that being tied to their phones the problems that has created for them. And I've received so many essays from students who just Mm. like express this longing to not be so tied to their phones and to social media and to the problems that, that, um, that engenders. Um, Again, I see in this generation so much empathy for others, um, so much a a longing to create equity and justice uh, across um, it, like across ethnicities, across gender sexuality. Um, and that and that kind of tolerance, I think, does come out of social media. The, the connectedness to other parts of the world helps them understand and see others better. And even though there are all kinds of limitations with technology, I think that's one of the good things, that it has made them more longing for justice, more tolerant for others, more empathetic about others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't. Sometimes I don't understand the the uh, the judgment that they want to be coddled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if 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 that is a problem, if they do want to be coddled, that's that falls on us, their parents and mentors, mm. who have created the kind of systems that allow them to to um, you know to to ask us for more than we want to give them. So I'm mm-hmm. thinking, for example, uh, when I was a kid. If I didn't turn in my homework, my parents didn't know. If I was a, mm. if I got an F on a test, my parents didn't know. But mm-hmm. now, I mean, we have immediate access to whether they've done their homework or not. 
At the high school level. At the high school, yeah. yeah college level too. Yeah. And well, yeah, at the high school level, whether they've done their homework, what kind of grade they're getting. Like we have access to all that mm-hmm. and and can just completely ride them and, and mm-hmm. apply pressure to them yeah. consistently. Yeah. And that's a use of technology, uh, you know, of an older generation using technology in a kind of surveilling way. Right. You know, so like... So you see the abuses of technology across the generations in that right. kind of example. Right. And, and surveilling, like yeah. there are apps that allow us to see exactly where our kids are at what time. Right. And yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's creating created problems mm-hmm. for our young people. What do you think, kind of digging into that a little bit deeper, you know, thinking about either judgments on Gen Z or in the ways that can go the other direction too, or, you know, mm-hmm. I think about the kind of the okay boomer kind of attitude mm-hmm. um, that millennials and younger generations can sometimes have told older generations. What do you think is at the source of generational resentment like that? Yeah. <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah. Not, it, mm-hmm. That's obviously a big question, but I guess kind of growing yeah. out of your own, like yeah. as you wrestled as a parent, you know, kind of thinking through how do I navigate this? Yeah. Um, and, and talk, you talk too about other parents, the community of parenting you're a part of. Right, right. Um, yeah. Why do you think we sometimes turn toward resenting, you know, younger generations, but really all generations in a way? Yeah. yeah. Why do we turn toward that resentment instead of compassion or understanding? Right. right. Um, well, this is going to sound like an English professor answer, but mm. I don't, I don't We're not think... reading enough novels. Well, almost. Or memoirs. Yes. <laughs> But also not listening to each other's stories. Like mm-hmm. we don't take the time to get to know, like truly get to know somebody, to know their story, to know their challenges, to know uh, what their journey has been about. Like we don't just sit down and talk to people and get to know their stories. And I think when we know somebody else's story well, we're going to understand and appreciate them differently. Um in the book, in the last chapter, I talk about going on juniors abroad, which I've done two mm-hmm. years in a row now to Costa Rica and that was an amazing intergenerational um, time where we sat down at dinner with these young people and got to know who they were outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And, and just get- to jump in, people who may not know Juniors Abroad, it's yeah, yeah. a program we have here at George Fox. It's a great program where students study abroad for like a month or a little less Three now weeks, in the yeah. month of May mm-hmm. with faculty um, doing the, just the kind of experiences you're talking about. So sorry to jump right, in. Right. I just wanted no. to clarify for no, listeners. No, that's great. Um, so I've gone to Costa Rica two years now with students, and uh, my co-leader is a, a good friend who works in the math department, and we've been friends for 35 years, so it makes mm. – we went to college together. Yeah. So it just – it allows them to see a friendship and a partnership and the and um, the authenticity, uh, authenticity of our friendship over – all these years, um, it allows us to just sit down and get to know these students and their, you know, who they are truly outside the classroom. And they see us um, grappling with our fears, um, mm. grappling, grappling with challenges. Like um, I talk about having to jump off, uh, do zip lining. I'm really f- afraid of heights. But having students watch me do that and seeing my, my humanness I think changes our relationship with them and they can see adults for who we really are. Mm-hmm. So you did jump because that chapter where you talk about, it's a bit of a, it's it's not a cliffhanger. It's like a yeah. platform hanger. Yeah, but yeah. The, I have to read it just because it was okay. fun. Um, so 
they give you're scared on the platform and they coast they give the Costa Rican affirmation that all is well and all be well so and that this life is worth living he opened the platform gate inviting me to leave and that's where the chapter ends yeah. so I kind of was like she left right you know as reading I that. so you did how, and yeah. how did it how did it feel when you went down that that zip line um it was horrible <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt really good that I had done it and yeah. I don't want to ever have to do it again yeah but um, but more broadly, that's a metaphor for like the invitation that we have to just leap into things, to lean into our relationship with young people, even mm-hmm. when it feels scary or when, when there feels like there's that generational divide there, just, mm-hmm. just leaping into those opportunities, I think will be rewarding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things we really ask students to lean into during the college years, especially in a kind of Christian higher ed context, is the idea of vocation and kind mm-hmm. of identifying and kind of following through on a calling. Um, and one of your early, and I think uh, one of the chapters that really stood out to me um, was the way you thought through vocation, young adulthood, and both the promise of that, but also maybe some of the pathologies of how we talk about vocation um, in our kind of Christian higher ed context. So um, could you talk a little bit about maybe what you think the standard narrative or one of the standard narratives of vocation is for students, Mm -hmm. maybe how that narrative can fall short sometimes and what's a better, how should, what's a healthy constructive way to talk about vocation with the young adults in our lives? Yeah. So that, that's another observation that came out of trying to help my sons figure out what they were going to do after mm-hmm. college graduation or high school graduation. Mm-hmm. And one of my sons saying to me, how, how do I know? I haven't been in the world yet. I have no, I don't know what the choices are. And that called me up short. Like, yes, we are asking our 18 year olds to make decisions about vocation and calling. And they really don't know what's available to them. They don't know what kind of world exists beyond our home. Um, And then I talked to a number, for the book, I interviewed a number of George Fox graduates um, who talked about that same kind of pressure when they were seniors here at George Fox and Mm. people saying, well, what's God calling you to? And a number of them saying, well, I'm not sure yet. Um, And and one of the students said it, it felt like that that idea of calling or vocation was being weaponized. And if, if you did not know what your calling was, if you still weren't sure, then there was something wrong with you rather than something wrong with this idea about vocation or calling. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think we can press students like early on at George Fox to pick a major, stick with that major, know, have a sense of your entire trajectory before you leave college um, which is another great argument for the liberal arts, like allowing students the opportunity to explore the different opportunities that are open to them mm-hmm. might be a better path forward rather than saying you have to decide now what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, I use my own story of um, assuming that I was going to be a sports journalist all the way through college yeah. till my last semester. And then that things fell apart. I realized that that was not what I was called to do. And then spending most of my 20s just completely anxious about what my calling was supposed to be and wishing somebody had said to me at 21, just relax. You will you will find what God is calling you to and and do some exploration still, even after college graduation. Mm-hmm. 
So um, when I meet with students now who are getting ready to graduate, I make sure to have that talk with them because I wish somebody had said that to me, that, that there's still time. You yeah. will find your calling. And you may have multiple callings in your life. Like we are not just all called to one job or one vocation. And that, the, I, that God is actually calling us to something much, to a, a different kind of lived experience um, where we love God and love others. Mm -hmm. You bring up the really classic Frederick Beekner quote that I think a lot right. of people think of when they think about vocation, about it being vocation being where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Right. Um, I'm wondering how you would unpack that for a student, those kind mm -hmm. of two the kind of two-pronged approach <clears throat> Beekner takes to vocation. Because I think with Beekner too, like, especially like, that's a quote I've heard so much. It's kind of one of those quotes where it's kind of a little bit like water going over my head or something or mm -hmm. under the bridge. Um, I, I've kind of lost some of the the pop that quote's supposed to have. So, right. and and I think you did a nice job in the book kind of unpacking that. So how, how do you think about that as a way of helping students into this kind of more holistic understanding of what vocation can be? Yeah. Well, I think like you, <clears throat> that that quote has become kind of, um, it isn't as salient to me. Um, and I, I honestly worry that sometimes it's a little bit classist. And, you know, mm. some people are going to have a job for the rest of their lives that they don't really mm -hmm. enjoy, mm -hmm. but they still do because they want to put food on the table for their family. Mm -hmm. um, so is there space in our calling to recognize that some people are going to have a job? And then their calling is going to be apart from their job. Mm -hmm. And and how can we honor those people who are doing different kinds of jobs mm -hmm. and, and recognize that for some people, the vocational calling might be completely different. Mm -hmm. um, I do hope that my students find joy in, in whatever they do, but also recognize that, you know, not everybody's going to write the great American novel and a lot of a lot of people who go through the English major are going to end up doing really. Um, uh, they may be writing for a number of years in ways that don't give them a lot of joy, um, but is still doing good in some ways for for the world in mm -hmm. which they exist. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite kind of writings on vocations by a scholar named Belden Lane, and he has a book in his, or an essay in his book called The Salsa of Fierce Landscapes. Um, the essay is called Snocking, uh, not Snocking, Stalking the Snow Leopard, A Meditation on Work. And in it, he makes a distinction between um, one's work and one's job. Mm -hmm. And a sense of like work is what is sort of deeply attached to our own gifting. Mm -hmm. um, and a job is kind of what in some ways gives us cover to do that work because there's mm -hmm. always going to be this gap between um between your work what you're doing out of your gifting and what you feel led to do and like what a job requires of you a job's always mm -hmm. going to have aspects that are drudgery or not mm -hmm. your favorite part but hopefully your job is a cover it gives you enough of a chance to do what you love to do mm -hmm. and um i think maybe helping students understand that like there is that gap between their vocational work and then whatever job they find themselves in. And there can be different degrees of overlap. Um, right. Some of us are really fortunate to find like a very tight overlap. There's never a complete overlap. And some, like you're saying, may have to kind of find other ways to express their vocation. You, you had a really great story in here about a student 
um, who ends up going to beauty school that you had. Can you tell that story? I really, I thought that was just a perfect encapsulation of some of the stuff you're talking about. Oh, for sure. So um, for a number of years, George Fox had a general ed course for first year students where we would explore vocation and calling and what God was calling them to. And we had readings about that. <clears throat> we had readings about that. We had, um, they would do writing exploration and, the class really was for retention to try to keep students at George Fox and invested. But one student like two and a half months into her first semester was like, yeah, I, I think I'm called to go to beauty school and not be here at George Fox. So she left the university and went and pursued beauty school. Now, in some ways that means the course failed. It didn't meet the objective of keeping that student at George Fox. But in other ways, like those readings really provide fertile ground for her to mm -hmm. recognize that God was calling her to something that she didn't need to be at George Fox mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. And I love to like going back to that point you made of like the liberal arts context for that, right? You're mm -hmm. in this kind of general education. I don't know what these readings were like, but I assume it kind of gave a broad sense for looking at that and mm -hmm. um, the way that can help people discern vocation by helping them stand back from the super, not there's anything wrong with something that's super vocationally oriented, mm -hmm. you know, that too, but um, especially when we're doing that discernment as young adults in a challenging job market, the ability to step back and reflect um, is just a really valuable thing that I think a liberal arts um, or just a humanistic kind of or, or Christian, however you want to frame it, kind of education can provide. Yeah. I think if there was a big tension that you talk about in the book that we often have to work through and that you kind of felt yourself working through is that tension between loving people which we all know we're supposed to do and we all know bears good fruit, even if it's hard and like um, choosing to be fearful instead. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that really came up in a moment sort of near the end of the book. I think in your chapter on love, you talked about a moment where you're out in the backyard um, doing what you call wood cutting therapy with mm -hmm. a chainsaw, um, which I thought was a really powerful image. But I was wondering, could you tell that story as well? Um, and what you learned from that moment? Sure. Um, so this was the summer of 2021 and both my kids were living at home. They had launched for a little while and then mm -hmm. they came back home. Mm -hmm. Benjamin was deciding to go to enlist and my younger son was having trouble like gaining traction on adulthood. Um, and I was just feeling lots of stress and anxiety and fear about their futures because it didn't seem clear to any of us. Um, so I was cutting wood in the backyard and uh, I felt something under my foot and I looked and I had stepped on a baby bird mm. and, the, and the mom was squawking around me. Mm -hmm. And then I realized why she was squawking around mm. me is because I had stepped on a, on a baby bird and um, killed it. Um, but that became, and I started crying. It, I just had this over reaction mm -hmm. to killing a bird um, it reminded me of John Woolman, the famous Quaker, yeah. who also killed a bird. Or yeah, um, but it it kind of became an epiphany for me that I was holding on to fear. I was not letting my kids. I was not letting them be who God created them to be. That I was just holding on to them so tightly. Mm -hmm. I was letting fear win. Mm. Um, and it was kind of crushing them. Mm. And so if I wanted to let them become who God created them uniquely to be, I had to let go 
and that that was probably the most loving thing to do at that time, even though it was the most painful for me, which meant letting my son go to join the military, mm -hmm. letting him go to boot camp. Uh, and I, I mean that more in the figurative sense at this point, because he was going to sure. go, but I had to just release that. Yeah, this is like an emotional letting go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I told my youngest son that he really needed to leave Newburgh if he was going to grow up and become a man, which was hard for me to do because I loved having him close, mm -hmm. but um, helped him get a job out of state. And he left too. And so our nest was empty. Um and again, it was very hard to let them go. It was very hard to let go of that fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I knew that that was that loving them meant letting them leave. And that's hard because I had, you know, they'd been in my home for eighteen years at that point, nineteen mm -hmm. years, and I didn't want to let go. Yeah. Um, I, that really resonated with me, the idea, you know, connecting with the woman's a scholar, you know, someone who's been really important to me and kind of mm -hmm. seeing that, that sense of, I think for a woman in his journal, it's very much about his own seeking control too. For him, it's more mm -hmm. control over nature mm -hmm. because he wants, he's like throwing like all this classic, like little boy thing, right? He's mm -hmm. throwing rocks at birds and he kills, kills some of the birds or he knocks them out of the nest actually. Right. And he realizes they're injured and it's better to actually kill them than to move forward so it's 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 a, even more gruesome than your experience i think because it was intentional but mm -hmm. for that there it's about the control of nature um and here you kind of recognize that it's it's a i think as a parent there's like the boundary can blur very easily between the responsibility we feel for mm -hmm. our children and then the sense of like how that can move into like a feel a need to control our children that's probably right. just like the dark side of the responsibility we have as parents mm -hmm. um and it's, it's heavy stuff to work through. So I, I really appreciate you putting so much of yourself out there sort of in this book. Um, yeah, for sure. Was it, how was, how was that? I assume part of that was hard as you kind of have it now printed out and like it's out in the world. It's mm -hmm. done in the sense mm -hmm. that a book can be done. Um, how are you feeling on the other side of this writing process, exploring um, some of these really hard things that were going on starting, you know, around 2020 2021 now that we're kind of nearing the end of 2023 mm -hmm. yeah so um i should make clear that the hard stuff that i wrote about i cleared with my sons mm -hmm. so that so that they know that i've written about this um yeah i like it was hard to write this it was hard at first to talk about it like first few podcast interviews i cried when i talked mm -hmm. about my son going into the military because it's it still can be really raw, especially mm -hmm. when you think about what's going on in the Mediterranean. Of course, and yeah. My son was deployed last year in the Mediterranean, so that was always, it's you know, it's right there in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think getting past the, the initial um, vulnerability hangover, I think it's become easier to talk about this, especially because other parents, other mentors have shared their stories with me. Mm-hmm. And that's one way I think that we become less alone is by hearing that other people mm. are also on this journey. Mm -hmm. So even this weekend, I was at a wedding shower for somebody and another person talked to me about her son's journey and feeling like she couldn't talk to people about that just because it can be kind of embarrassing if your son or your daughter isn't doing what we expect 
young people to do. So being able to share my story, I think it opens up opportunities for others to share as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One story you shared with us in our pre-production meeting um, I don't know if you're willing to share that story now, but I thought sure. it was a great encapsulation of some of the social struggles, but also some of the humor that I think comes with parenting. Yeah. Would you mind kind of sharing one more story sure. with us of that? Sure. So um, I was in class. I had my computer open and my youngest son tried to FaceTime me and I just texted and said, I can't talk now because I'm in class. And uh, he said, yo, I have some big news. Um, and, and, that brought up all this fear that I still have for him because I want him to be, I mean, he's doing really great right now, but I, I still worry about who he was and the struggles he had. So I was feeling all this fear, wondering if something had happened with his job or if he'd been in a car wreck because um, he said he had big news. Mm -hmm. uh, and so after class, I hurried back to my office and called him and his big news was that he had bought a new video game. So... Um, my own, like my fear is still triggered and I have to try to press that down. It's very difficult as a parent to do that. Like mm -hmm. we, we can automatically go to the really bad narratives because I think we love our kids so intensely. Mm -hmm. We worry about them and it can be, you know, we can just write these narratives in our head that aren't, aren't true at all. Mm -hmm. So he did get a talking to about like, bro, this is your, <laughs> this is your big news. <laughs> like, why are you bugging me in class to tell me this? So, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there, I think the heart that maybe some of the joy of parenting and also the challenge that your children are a mirror to you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, both in, in really delightful ways. Um, but also in the challenging ways of like showing, you know, seeing in, of, you know, the way they can raise our anxieties or our fears, um, where they really don't need to be there. Right. Um, and also in some ways that again, like, I think another, we didn't talk about as much in this book, but you talk about some of the really wonderful moments with family you have. And, you know, you talk about too in the book of having um, your two youngest sons are adopted. You have two um, older stepchildren. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk about the way, it, you have a really beautiful scene, I think, where you're doing a gingerbread house competition in there mm -hmm. and just some of the fun of that. Um, and that's a really important note to sound as well too, I think in the midst of all this. Because I think in some ways it's those um, moments of humor or surprise or fun that bring a really crucial levity to some of the the harder things that parents are working through. Absolutely. And a reminder that no matter what our permutations of family are, that, that we need to feel gratitude for those unique moments when Absolutely. we are together. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for writing this book and coming on the podcast to talk with us a little bit about what you learned in the process. I really enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you, Jay. It's fun to see you grow from young adulthood into millennialness and being a great professor. Thank you. Yeah. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.